You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. This week, with a week to go before the UK votes on whether to leave the European Union, we devote the podcast to looking at the campaign, nationally and in the north of Ireland, and what are the ordinary voters saying in the Midlands and the Shires. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, in the last week there's been a slide in Remain support in the polls. Where do they stand now? Well, there are three polls that just came out in the last uh, day or two, and two of them show Leave ahead by six or seven points, and one shows Remain ahead by about five points. But then even in that poll, if you look at the number of people who say they're definitely going to vote, a majority of them say that, or a plurality of them will say that they're going to vote for Leave. So there's no question but that the polls are showing a slide towards Leave, and you get a lot of anecdotal evidence as well uh, from canvassers, uh, and particularly among uh, the skilled uh, working class, should we say, so the, what's, what's called the C2 voters. They tend to, to be particularly breaking towards uh, a Leave vote, and they seem to be pushed by immigration, above all things. What do the social division say? You talked about the C2 voters. Where, where are the other sections of, of, of British society d- dividing? Well, well basically, the, the, the way it seems to work is that the more educated and the better off you are, the more likely you are to support Remain. So there's still a, a really very substantial margin in favour of Remain among the professional classes, among, uh, the, uh, among the, the, the reasonably well-off middle class and among the educated. And there's also a big majority among the young. Older voters tend to go towards uh, Leave. And then you have this group of what would really be kind of traditional Labour working class uh, voters. And an awful lot of them are moving towards uh, the Leave vote. And that's the big worry that, uh, that the Remain campaign has. They feel as if they may probably be competitive in a sense within the arguments within the Conservative Party. But they need a, a big majority of Labour voters or Labour supporters to back Remain. And they're not really sure they're going to get that. Now, the polls did very badly at the general election, the pollsters. They, they have something to prove in terms of, of predicting the, the result in this election. Um, have they got their act together? And, and can they get their act together? Because there hasn't been a referendum for many years. It makes, it makes finding um, a, a benchmark, uh, uh, previous records, very, very difficult to, to measure against. That's absolutely right. And that's, in fact, the reason why there is not going to be an exit poll on referendum night is because the pollsters can't work out a methodology to do it. Uh, The way they work it with general elections is that they have certain constituencies uh, that they tend to poll time and time again. And uh, so they're able to measure changes within those and extrapolate from from that. But as you say, there hasn't been a referendum on the European Union since 1975, so there's nothing really to compare it to. And other referendums, you can't compare this one to either because they're all so different. So what they're doing, all of the different polling agencies, they're fiddling around with the weightings to try to make sure that their samples are right or they're not overcompensating in one direction or another. And what nobody knows is who's getting it right or indeed if anybody is getting it right. And one of the big breakdowns 
has been in the past uh, few weeks between online polls, which tend to give leave a bigger score, and phone polls, which tended to give Remain a bigger uh, number. But what's happening now is that actually they seem to be coming together, so that both phone polls and online polls are showing a drift towards the leave side. Online polls would tend to be more self-selecting. Uh, yeah, well, yes, they might be. I mean, it's actually one of the, the differences, of course, between Britain and Ireland is that in Ireland, uh, most polls are done face-to-face. Nobody in Britain does any face-to-face polling. So uh, they do polls either online or by phone. But the phone polls are a problem as well because you can't really get people at home or, or you're, you know, you're not sure who you're going to get. Uh, there are so many people just won't accept it. They, uh, you know, and so, it's, so in, in a way, both methodologies are tricky. And both, obviously, uh, you know, uh, all the posters or most of the posters got the last general election wrong. Now, in a way, that's possibly a crumb of comfort for the Remain campaign, who need a crumb of comfort this week as they've only a week to go and things aren't looking very good for them. And that is that because this is a status quo, uh, the status quo is to vote for Remain. And the people are often a bit shy about saying, actually, I'm going to stick with what we know, just as they were a bit shy, perhaps, about saying they were going to vote for the Conservative Party last time round, that maybe there's going to be, you know, the polls are underestimating the sort of the shy support for Remain. And then the other piece of comfort that they tend to provide for themselves is that in most referendums everywhere uh, in the last few days, the wavering voters tend to go towards the status quo. And so what uh, both people on the Remain side and indeed a number of people on the Leave side have said to me in the last week or so is that they think an awful lot of people are going to go into the polling booth and just ask themselves the question, how much is this thing going to cost me? And even if they feel kind of romantically attached to the notion of voting for Leave, that some of them really won't do that in the end. And, but the, and the turnout, of course, is critical, and that presumably is one of the, the imponderables for the, the pollsters. Yes. Uh, again, uh, you know, there are advantages for both sides in this, because older voters tend to turn out more than younger voters, and older voters are backing leave. But on the other hand, uh, the better educated and the better off voters tend to turn out more than the less well off or the less educated voters. And so that ought to benefit Remain. Uh, they, they've had this idea that actually Remain has, you know, if it wants, you know, if the turnout is below, say, 55, 56, 57 percent, that Leave will probably win just because their voters are more certain that they're going to go out. And then once you get into the mid 60s, that then you've got an advantage for uh, for the Remain side because uh, you know because the, 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 you know then you're getting all of these other voters. It's all really uh, guesstimates and 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 very uh, unscientific. And uh, what what we have seen, though, in the course of the the the, um, the last week, has been a serious tactical shift from the Remain campaign, uh, reaching out to Labour supporters who they fear are, as you say, have, are drifting uh, towards the the Leave uh, camp. And we're seeing Corbyn out today. We saw. Uh, Hillary Benn and and Gordon Brown yesterday. Um, is this bringing uh, a new sense of of realism to the the Remain uh, campaign? Well, I think there are two parts of this. One is that the Labour people are getting out there to try to get their message directly to Labour voters to say, "We are the party of jobs." 
and leaving the European Union is a threat to jobs. And that's their core message. And, uh, you know, the European Union has protected workers' rights and that if you leave, you're not going to have some kind of, uh, you know, workers' paradise. Instead, you're going to have people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove making a bonfire of workers' rights. So that's their argument. The other part of this is that David Cameron and company are getting out of the way for a few days because one of the difficulties that Labour has had getting through to its voters is that Labour voters have watched this campaign, which has looked uh, most of the time like an argument within the Conservative Party. And a lot of Labour voters look at this and they just say, I, uh, you know, I have nothing to do with this and this has nothing to do with me. And they don't feel like supporting David Cameron any more than they feel like supporting Boris Johnson. So part of the thing is to really get David Cameron uh, standing in the background just for a few days so that Labour has a chance to get its message across to its people. Labour does have one advantage, despite all of uh, the troubles that it has and the uh, unpopularity among MPs uh, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has, and that is that Labour has a lot of members. Unlike most of the political parties in, uh, in Britain, Labour has a really active member base, and so they can actually get people out uh, canvassing. Now, an awful lot of these canvassers are getting very negative responses on the doorstep, but nonetheless, they are meeting voters in a way that most other parties and indeed the Leave campaign don't have the capacity to do. And the the Labour Party, certainly the parliamentary Labour Party, is overwhelmingly in, in favour of, of Remain. But is that also so of, of its rank and file? That's, that's, that's what we're not sure of now, because it, it certainly was the case. Uh, It was the case uh, until a few weeks ago that uh, almost 50% of people who supported Remain were Labour Party supporters. But what you're seeing now is this uh, slippage of the uh, of elements of the white working class vote, particularly in parts of England outside London, where. Uh, they're persuaded by the Leave campaign's arguments that one of the reasons why public services are under such strain is because of uncontrolled immigration from the European Union. And so what you hear over and over and over again is people talking about their individual stories of having to wait three weeks for a doctor's appointment or not being able to get housing or not being able to get their second or third child into the school where his brothers or sisters were because the schools are too full. And so what they're saying is, you know, uh, there are just too many people here. And the only way you can control immigration is if you get out of the European Union, because obviously with the free movement of people in the European Union, you can't control it. In in the Scottish debate, one of the things that was most remarkable really was that voters not only decided on the... the, um, uh, issue of Scottish independence, but they also decided at the same time, more or less, to ditch Labour. And is there a danger for Labour that uh, the voters who are deserting them now will desert them permanently? Yes, uh, but this has actually been a bit of an anxiety uh, over the last while, really since the last election, which is that actually there are kind of two sets of Labour voters. That the, you know, you have this traditional. Uh, working class vote, and then you have the kind of liberal metropolitan uh, element which supports Labour. Now, that liberal metropolitan element is very much in the ascendant where Jeremy Corbyn's leadership is concerned. And what what, what, uh, many Labour MPs and canvassers are finding now is that in this referendum, uh, 
they, they feel as if they're out of touch with that working class base that's uh, that an awful lot of the uh, the traditional working class is drifting towards if not actually voting for UKIP at least su- supporting UKIP policies and adopting UKIP attitudes and they feel as if these attitudes are more in tune with their thinking than the Labour Party is as it is, as it is now so that is a worry for the Labour Party so The whole campaign could be a double whammy uh, for, for Labour if it loses the, the vote on, on the EU and then loses its base as well. well I think you know, that's actually precisely the lesson of the Scottish uh, referendum, which is that if people get out of the habit of voting with their party, that they can really get out of the habit of voting with their party or for their party. Who's your money on? My money is still on Remain, uh, in that I think that there are certain fundamentals, particularly the, the tendency towards the status quo, which will... Uh, impel those people who haven't made up their minds to go for Remain. So I think uh, I would still say at this stage that Remain will get it, but it's, it, it's looking a bit dodgy. Thank you very much, Dennis. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Belfast, where Newton Emerson, a political commentator and Irish Times columnist, has been watching the campaign mesmerised, no doubt. What's the campaign like? Uh, is it door to door? Is it are the voters exercised? No, in fact, the literature has only just started arriving now, but uh, but the voters certainly are exercised. And in, in fact, I've never known uh, in, in my lifetime uh, a subject like this where people are spontaneously seeking to, to start political conversations. And people are aware that that's unusual as well. Usually the second thing they say after, how are you going to vote is, isn't it amazing that we're asking each other that? Because th- th- these would have been unmentionable. <laughs> Politics was unmentionable in polite society in Northern Ireland up till now. Uh, I think that people are reveling in the idea of a, of a genuinely non-sectarian, interesting ideological question. We'll, we'll come to the non-sectarian bit, but it, it, does that mean though there is activity, political activity going on in, in, in the communities, the, the, the people, the political parties are knocking on doors, or uh, how, how are they doing it? Is it by meetings or simply just broadcasting debate? Well, the the, uh, the political activity that's taking place is grassroots and spontaneous. People starting conversations, going to meetings, going to events. Campaign groups are more likely to be organising these kind of talks and events than political parties themselves. I think the parties are all very cautious of the fact that their own voters are divided. They don't want to 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 be to be too firmly on one side or the other. Uh, and, and of course, most of the parties in Northern Ireland have rather conflicted positions themselves on it. Sinn Féin, for example, is firmly uh, against Brexit, but was previously an anti-European party. And of course, also it, its voters are wondering if perhaps poking the UK with a stick is a, is, a, is a good strategic idea for them in the long run. And But there are then actually leave campaigns and remain campaigns uh, organised in, in, in the North. Yes, there are. Although uh, you know, because they're they're essentially cross party, uh, they don't they don't really register with people as making much sense. This is something we're only just getting used to through this new form of opposition and government in Northern Ireland. That you might have parties uh, across the uh, the divide working together, and the odd mixtures that you get, particularly on the Leave campaign. Aren't really helping to, to to sort of to sort of gel one political message. You have a fairly odd mix of people in Leave, in particular, right across the spectrum. I, I can't see uh, dissident Republicans actually getting up on the same platform as DUP members. No, but uh, <clears throat> but more, more uh, you know more prominently and more oddly than that, we've had our trade unions here opting for Leave because, of course, they are controlled by uh, the the far left. 
uh, well, the far left here, they're the anti-austerity alliance in, in, in Dublin. They're not that unusual. But um, th this has caused great surprise. Uh, ordinary members of unions are saying, why is this happening? Because they haven't been paying attention to the, the actual political views of, of the people that they're voting into union office. This is the kind of surprise, I think, that, it, that, it is, that is pulling people up. Another surprise, I think, is that the farmers are generally supporting Brexit. That's really shocked everyone. People are saying, well, what about your what about your grants and your subsidies? It turns out they believe that the British government would simply recycle those back to them, uh, something I find completely implausible. Well, certainly the, the farmers must be aware that the Tory party is deeply hostile to cap and cap-type payments. Uh, it does seem strange that they would take at face value assurances that they'll simply replace the EU money with London money. It does. Perhaps they think that it's a party of landowners, but this uh, this policy is so expensive and based now, of course, simply on a on a per hectare payment for land, whatever you do with it, that it's it's politically indefensible. So there are some there's some very very odd uh, positions being taken. I think perhaps revealing the fact that people in Northern Ireland aren't used to thinking through <laughs> thinking through political positions rationally. We think with our gut here, we're born into our political views, and when asked to to puzzle out a genuine question. We don't really know how to do it. Now, you touched on it slightly in the, in the, the sectarian divide. It, this is not quite the traditional unionist-nationalist divide, but it's it's an approximation. The EU, in some sense, is a proxy for the traditional allegiances. It seems to be in polling that uh, a minority of unionists are for the EU and an overwhelming majority of nationalists uh, are, are, are for the EU. Uh, but, I mean, again, this, is, this has everyone very conflicted because voting for or against Brexit is also in the same, to the same extent voting for and against the UK. Uh, you know, if you're voting to keep the, the UK in Europe, you're voting to keep the UK together. So why are nationalists for that and why are unionists against it? Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's polling that I, that I find difficult to believe, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I... I, I I don't trust these, these answers. And of course, in Northern Ireland, polling isn't good enough because you, we can't afford proper polling in Northern Ireland. Effectively, we've got a big enough population to justify it. So I, I'm taking this all with a pinch of salt at the moment. And I've been talking to Dennis Staunton, our London editor, about polling. And polling did particularly badly in the British general election in terms of predicting the, the result and has particular problems, I think, in, in relation to referendums. And, and I, I suppose that's, that's exacerbated in the North. It is. And I, I, obviously, we're not going to ever really know, of course, how the unionist nationalist vote broke down even after the fact, because there isn't a second box to tick on, on your ballot. Uh, and also, of course, it will depend entirely on turnout. The result will depend entirely on turnout, which can be extremely low in a, in a European referendum, even here. Even with the level of local agitation? Yes, uh, I mean, it remains to be seen. But uh, the fact is that on the day, uh, you know, European uh, results can be pretty low. Uh, I, I mean, uh, to give you to give you one very anecdotal example, my own brother has found someone who is planning to vote the opposite way as him, and they, they've paired off and decided to abstain in a Westminster-style bearing arrangement. I mean, Lord knows what kind of they're, mad notions are being sprung out there. They're not this going really to bother turning out. You mean is that not the, turning out? Yes, mm -hmm. this is this is really something that people have no experience of. The last European referendum here was forty years ago, and I've spoken to only one person who remembers it. It's a uh, it's, it's a very new kind of politics here, and all taking place against a very new kind of politics. It's Stormont, of course, uh, only weeks old. So people are people are bemused by the. Novelty, but no. also I think intrigued and amused by the novelty. 
I think from here, uh, the spectacle of Sinn Féin, as you've already referred to it, uh, enthusiastically supporting uh, Remain, looks very peculiar. But, but their attitude to the EU has been evolving. It has, and uh, their change, the, the change towards the EU has taken place over about 15 years, so it's not a particular surprise. I think that there has been more surprise amongst the business community at the position from the DUP. Now, the DUP is firmly uh, for Brexit, Unlike the UUP, which is sort of half, half, it's taken a sort of half-baked kind of uh, kind of approach to stay in. I think the uh, the, the UUP approach is, is is one I've heard very often voiced by unionists, which is it's not worth the bother of leaving. Let's stay in and see what happens. But the DUP is firmly and on principle committed to to coming out. Uh, that's particularly odd for new DUP first minister. Arling Foster, who was the business minister here effectively for the past decade, uh, the business community is appalled by this. They suspect that perhaps she's only she's only said this to, to keep her own brand new leadership on track. Uh, and always, of course, there's the suspicion that what's really motivating the DUP is some pretty atavistic British nationalism. Well, we, we can see her real sense of priority at the moment from the fact that she seems to be appearing every night on our television screens from the south of France. Yes, uh, the the, uh, the new DUP first minister has a, a job of rebranding to do. We've been promised before the election, the Stormont election, that that we would have to wait until then to see the real Arlene, as it was put, and uh, and and so she's she's in the midst of doing that now. I'm sure that this European referendum is the last thing she wanted, and she can't win by taking any position anyway. Her own party is probably a little bit conflicted on it. Her own voters, I suspect, are deeply conflicted on it. Now, one of the most public rows has been about uh, border posts and the return of, of, of a, a physical border between North and South. And Theresa Villiers has been contradicted by the Chancellor very bluntly. And her argument is, is a bit odd because she says it's a, she talks about uh, it's not a question of return to watchtowers and a militarised border. But I don't think anybody's suggesting that at all. Yes, she did put up a bit of a straw man argument there. Uh, as an aside, I must say that Villiers' position has made life a lot easier for Sinn Féin and the SDLP. Uh, Villiers' hardline stance for Brexit has made it look a lot less, uh, shall we say, un- pseudo-unionist of our nationalist parties to uh, to oppose Brexit. Uh, there, there's wide debate on what it would mean for the border. But as far as I can see from the example of the Nordic Passport Union, which is in a very similar position historically and technically to our common travel area, if the UK left the EU, we wouldn't lose free passport-free travel. You could still move up and down across the border, no problem. But there would have to be some kind of customs arrangement somewhere. Now, they wouldn't necessarily have to be on the border. In fact, they probably couldn't be on the border, but you might have customs clearance in Armagh, say, or uh, firms trading across the border would have to fill in a lot of customs paperwork in Belfast or Dublin, respectively. So I think something like that would have to happen because when you look at the Nordic Union, uh, which predates the, uh, the, those countries joining the EU, Norway isn't in the EU. So um, it still is able to have free travel for its people, but they have they have customs posts yeah. along their borders. So if they couldn't get away with it, I, I seriously doubt we would. They're, they're part of the, the EEA as well um, and have a much freer trading relationship than uh, the Brexiters seem to suggest uh, w- would be the case. So that uh, That's right, that's right. So even, even in the uh, EEA, you still need customs arrangements of some kind. Yeah. 
Uh, finally, I just wanted to ask you about the Scottish issue and, and whether that has impacted on the debate. The, the Scots say that they would have to insist on another referendum if, if uh, they vote to stay and, and Britain votes to leave. Um, is, that a, is that something that is weighing on people's minds in the North? Not as much as I would have expected. Um, I, I personally think that uh, the, 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 this would uh, this would certainly kick it off uh, in Scotland all over again. I think that most people don't believe that a second referendum would be won. I don't believe that either. But what's not being uh, considered is just the reopening of that wound again and the drip, drip, drip effect of that poison into the UK as a whole. Um, I, I think we could probably do without that. Uh, and we would certainly get it if, uh, in particular, if England voted. We'll even get that, in fact, if England votes to leave and Scotland does, and, and the rest of the UK doesn't doesn't uh, or doesn't swing it overall. Um, that I think that, that you know that, that that issue will be reopened. Certainly, the divisions within the UK would would, would be opened up uh, again. It would be hardly a united kingdom. Anyway, listen. Uh, thank you very much, Newton. That's much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Suzanne Lynch, our Brussels correspondent, has just arrived in the old town of Grimsby on the eastern coast, but she's been travelling around the English countryside for the past few days. You spent some time in Herefordshire, the heart of the English countryside near the Welsh border. What are the farming community saying about the debate? Yes, Paddy. Um, well, Herefordshire is one of the most rural parts of Britain, and it's, it's very dependent on the agricultural industry. Um, now, a lot of people would have assumed that the, the farmers' vote would have been very pro-EU. Obviously, Britain, along with other countries, uh, gets a lot of money from Brussels uh, through the common agricultural policy. But in fact, uh, it's quite a divided picture. Um, I spoke to a number of farmers in the area. I attended a local debate organised by uh, the local uh, Conservative MP, Jesse Norman, and there were really an array of, uh, of opinions on view. People, as you can see in the in the farming community in Ireland, were very well educated, very very interested in the whole EU question, about the question of subsidies. But for every farmer who uh, appeared to welcome the fact that Brussels has, has given a lot of financial support to farmers, the other side of the argument was the fact that Brussels imposes a lot of regulations, a lot of red tape, which some farmers argue uh, hampers competitiveness and hampers innovation in the agricultural sector. Um, now, on the political uh, spectrum, we can see this split uh, very clearly. Interestingly, uh, the farming minister, uh, George, is, is backing a Brexit. So he has quite strongly been out on this issue, arguing essentially that the key point is whether or not uh, the British government would move in and replace any gap that would be left in terms of farmers' funding should uh, Britain vote this to is, exit. This is the single farm payment, which is the yes. supports a lot of farmers to the tune of up to 90% of their income. Yeah, and in Britain, I mean, Britain has always had a, a kind of a an interesting, un uncomfortable, if you like, relationship with EU agricultural policy. Traditionally, it has been opposed to the whole concept of agricultural subsidies. Uh, but at the same time, uh, British farmers do benefit. Uh, estimates from the from the, uh, the main farmers union here estimate that in 2015, farmers in Britain received about three billion euro in direct payments, as well as other payments through the agricultural pot, if you like. Um, around 50, 55 percent of income of farmers here in Britain is supported, does come uh, from, from Brussels. But at the same time, I think what's interesting about the debate from the farming community here is that 
farmers and, and the rural vote, if you like, still represent a very small part of the electorate here in Britain. Um, it is nothing like the kind of political clout it would have, say, in Ireland, for example, uh, where the IFA are very, very well organised and are a very powerful lobbying group. Yes, the National Farmers Union are, are important here, but just so many more people uh, proportionally live in, in the in the urban settings here in Britain. So I think a lot of farmers are worried that if they were to leave the European Union, how committed would any Conservative or Labour government be uh, to the needs of British farmers in the long term. So some people have even suggested that if Britain were to leave the European Union and British farmers lose that stream of income, could we see the British agricultural industry going the way, for example, of the mining sector? People at the time didn't think that that would um, decimate, and it did. Uh, so there are very, very mixed views here on, on this whole issue of, of the agricultural vote ahead of the referendum next week. And presumably this question of selling their produce as well, that the European Union is a, is a protected market. And if you, if you uh, rem, uh, move out of the European mm. Union, access to those markets is, is cut. And you're also exposed pretty quickly to... Uh, cheap imports from places like um, South America. Absolutely. That's the second main strand of debate, if you like, here. And, and the National Farmers Union, who are advocating a Remain vote, even though they're not actively campaigning, have highlighted this issue, this issue of access to markets. Um, the debate is taking part in the context of the broader debate about what kind of relationship Britain would have with the European Union after an exit? Would it still be part of the single market? Would it have a Norway-style relationship or a Switzerland-style relationship? And a lot of the remain the, 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 uh, the people who are advocating a withdrawal from the European Union in the agricultural community are arguing that another kind of trade deal will be done with Europe. That's the argument there. Of course, this is a huge unknown. Um, the other issue is uh, the um, I, I attended a debate, which was a very, very informed debate in, in a small uh, town, a uh, picturesque town on, in in, uh, beside the Welsh border. And uh, uh, one of the MEPs for the area, Anthea McIntyre, she's a Conservative MEP, but is advocating for a Remain vote. Um, she was was telling the group, the dozens of farmers that were, were gathered there, that um, she was making the point that Norway, for example, that is not part of the EU, still has to comply with so many EU regulations on agriculture and food produce. She listed many, many regulations out. She was making the point that even if Britain votes to leave and they still want to sell into the European market, British farmers, British producers will still have to meet those same standards, those same regulations. And whereas Norway is, you know, is is obliged to meet those regulations, it doesn't have a set, uh, say in setting or shaping those. The argument being that if Britain stays, at least it will be around the table when EU farming regulations are being set. So there's some of the kind of debates uh, that are happening here at grassroots level in, with, within the farming community. Of course, the Norwegians also pay for access into the EU, European market, uh, the sort of sums of money uh, per capita, which are comparable to Britain's net contribution. So there might actually not be uh, any money to to pay the farmers their single farm payment, but you you were also yes. you were also in in uh, Leicester, um, which is a very different kettle of fish altogether. W what's the mood in in the in the street there? Yes, well, the Leicester, which is only a, a couple of hours drive, maybe two or three hours north of where I was in Herefordshire, 
massacre. And it really was like entering a different world, obviously a much more urban environment, an extremely ethnically mixed a city. It's a, it's a town, a city of 350,000 people approximately. And uh, the last census in 2011 showed that it is one of Britain's most diverse cities in terms of ethnicity. Now, I was there on market day uh, in the centre of Leicester. In one sense, it, it feels like a tired uh, a town, uh, architecturally, um, you feel like you kind of walk back into the 1970s, 1980s. But in another way, um, it's actually quite modern. There were many food stalls there selling French produce, selling Dutch produce, selling Jamaican produce. And there was a real sense of a kind of a vibrant array of different cultures that were intermingling. And you could see that on the street where you saw a lot of visibly um, you know, visible indications of different ethnic backgrounds. A lot of women in full burqas, then a lot of uh, British white people, and then also a huge amount of Asian British. I think in the census, around 30% of those in Leicester back in 2011 identify themselves as Asian British. So it really is, is a mix. Now, it, it's an interesting city in that it, it, it prides itself, if you like, on its diversity. Um, its mayor um, has been very outspoken in the media, and of course, Leicester City came to international prominence recently um, after the football team won the Premier League. Uh, but he had, he spoke about inviting Donald Trump to the region to really see uh, what the reality of British life is, meeting British Muslims. That was after uh, Trump's controversial comments about British Muslims. Uh, so it is a city that prides itself uh, on diversity. But at the same time, as I've been finding throughout the country here, huge, huge diversity of views. And, and people are quite, quite, um, quite educated about the issues at question. Uh, but uh, about half the people I spoke to, I suppose, uh, on average, uh, were Remain, um, and the other half uh, were, were Leave vote. One of the arguments being made by the uh, Leave campaign is that the EU discriminates in terms of immigration uh, against Commonwealth citizens. And they were making a pitch particularly to family reunification um, uh, of the migrant communities in, in, in Britain, hoping that they would actually support um, the, the, um, the Leave uh, idea. How did you find that argument playing out? That It's very difficult to see how they can take plausibly the suggestion um, that Boris Johnson and his like would, would actually favour more immigrants from the uh, from Pakistan and, and India, for example, if they left the European Union. Yes, well, I suppose there are kind of two generations, if you like, of, of immigrants very, very broadly in Britain. I mean, you do have the, like you saw throughout Europe in the former colonies, this wave of immigration in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And in Britain, that constitute, constituted mainly uh, people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. And then you have particularly the uh, the East European migrants who, by definition, really the, the big swathe of East European migrants did, did not arrive in Britain until 2004 with the accession of, of 10 mostly centre, central and eastern European countries. So in that sense, there, there is a, a distinction. Um, now, the people I spoke to, I spoke to one um, Muslim, young British-born Muslim, and he was handing out leaflets in Leicester, um, trying to uh, educate people, he, said, he explained to me, and demystify the idea of Islam. 
two other British people. He was, he, as he put it to me, he said, I'm trying to explain to people that just because you look like me, and he pointed to a long beard, and that I am not a threat to you. Uh, so this is a very a kind of a liberal, modern English man in, in his 20s. And, but he did say in terms of the, of the British debate, he, he said his organisation wasn't political, but he was going to vote uh, Remain, actually. That was important uh, for Britain to remain in the European Union because he saw it as a, as a kind of um, a, a left-wing idea and a, a kind of protection against what they, a lot of people in Leicester see as a, as a Tory-dominated, Westminster-dominated uh, government. Um, so I, that was quite interesting. So to that extent, I suppose the people I spoke to um, were, from the, from the non-white British community, were more inclined actually uh, to vote for, for Remain vote. So to that extent, uh, perhaps that message that actually uh, of this two-tier kind of immigration uh, system wasn't quite getting through, at least to the people I spoke to. And what, what's your general feeling about, you know, touring around the country, about how it's going to go and where would you put your money in the, in the, in the vote? Um, it's, I, I, I have been, I've been very impressed, being honest, at the level of debate here um, compared to maybe the, the referendum we had in, in Ireland. Um, almost literally everybody I spoke to did have a very strong opinion uh, and were, were relatively well informed. And I definitely got the sense that people were going to get out there and vote and were taking this issue seriously. And to, to, to some extent, uh, one positive of, of this referendum is, is that um, it has led to a level of debate about the European Union that most countries never enjoy. So you see uh, people in these local parish halls and the streets debating Europe, and and that can only be, be a good good thing, uh, as it were. Um, in saying that, I was surprised, even though it's been cast as a debate between immigration on the one hand and economics on the other, and that is true to an extent. I've been struck struck by how how major the issue of sovereignty is for a lot of people on the Remain and Leave side. Virtually everybody I spoke to made the point about uh, getting power back from Brussels, about the European Union imposing laws and about the right of European Union imposing law and where where does sovereignty lie. So I think this issue is really going to be um, an issue that is going to play on people's minds, whatever way they're going to vote on this. Uh, For example, even those people spoke about emigration. immigration made the point that really the, the principle should be whether Brussels does have the right, whether the European Union should have the right to di- dictate immigration numbers or not to the country. So there's, there's quite a sophisticated um, discussion and debate going on here about the whole issue, a very, very broad issue about sovereignty, about national identity and about whether uh, this is the opportunity for people to make that break with European with the European Union. Um, yeah, so, the, so they move towards a leave vote that, that would be something that I have seen yeah. borne out uh, in among the people I've spoken to here in Britain Thank you very much Suzanne Thanks to Dennis Staunton Newton Emerson and Suzanne Lynch and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts <laughs>